Welcome to Squawk. My name is Luke. I'll be your host. And of course, I am here in studio with my co-host, Dr. Brian Nixon. And we've got a lot to cover today, as usual, and hardly ever enough time in which to cover it. But some really good vibes from the last podcast we just did. If you haven't listened to it, you must listen to it. It's the founding of Calvary Chapels and the Jesus Revolution. So far, that has been our most popular podcast. We have well over 100 downloads at this point, just from that single episode. And we've also picked up several additional countries to the people that are listening to us. We have, I think if we look at the entire roster, of something like nine or 10 countries, but we recently picked up Japan, Canada, Mexico, France, and we also have the Netherlands, Great Britain, of course, the United States, Australia. The roster is lining up as the things that we are addressing here are meeting a need to answer questions that people have. And one of the cool things of that podcast, Luke, as I shared with you and Daniel, our, our producer and engineer, I got a phone call from Jeremiah Beck from Calvary Chapel Modesto in California, and they said they shared that episode, that podcast with their staff to kind of give some insight into the early, the early, you know, Calvary movement. And, and so it, it may only be a, over a hundred downloads, but those downloads then translate to multiple listens. And so they usually say the downloads are about 10% of your listening audience of, of that. So, you know, you're, you're looking at at least a thousand plus impact points of not just people but just they're they're going out to to different um venues so it, it was a it was a fun broadcast that is excellent to hear so we are not attempting to be particularly sensational but we are trying to track keep our fingers on the pulse of what's happening because that's the best way to know what questions that people have the next podcast lord willing address extremely important and cutting edge hot spots in the theological and ecclesiastical community. Today, we're actually going to be talking about deliverance ministries. There are a host of questions. We're only going to be able to get to a very brief analysis. But remember, we are always available at calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. Calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. And if you have additional questions, feel free to reach out to us because we know that we're only getting to a small percentage of the questions mm. that you may have about this. But that being said, Brian, how was your class this week? The class went well. We're still in Christianity in America. Um, we looked at the first Great Awakening, of course, with Whitfield and Edwards. And we took a little dip into Spenner, who is the book that we're reading and next week, we're anticipating to get into John Wesley. So we're getting closer and closer to our modern era, um, but it, it's it's a joy. And our students, I have a full class, and it's just they, they always seem to be engaged and really appreciate uh, what we're doing. That is outstanding. Well, I appreciate what you're doing, and I know the students do, because that's excellent material. As far as what we did in the class this week, we have been helping the students craft their personal testimony. And they were they were able to deliver the first paragraph. It's going to be a three-paragraph study. This is who I am. This is my spiritual background. I came to Christ. Number two, this is how it happened. Number three, this is how it can happen for you. Mm. And making it very short and to the point so that they know how to use their personal coming to Christ as a means to evangelize. Because what else is a personal testimony for? And 
Then we're going to go out, talk to folks in the greater outdoors, witnessing to them, and then they're going to come back and do a revised version of it to refine it even further after mm. they've had some personal experience. So that's what we're looking at and very exciting yeah. to see the students grow in that manner. Just listening to that, Luke, you know, not only is it meaningful for the student to kind of relive that moment, but it's a very practical exercise. So kudos to you, Bravo. That's That's great that you're doing it. Well, very exciting. I love being able to sit there and be the recipient of hearing these testimonies. That's right. It's very, very exciting. Now, that being said, what we normally do is we go through a history, and then we go into more of the did-you-know doctrinal kind of thing. Because of the type of examination that we're providing, specifically looking at deliverance ministries, so-called, under that banner, it's a little more difficult to track down, well, exactly what the history is. Let's be honest. When we talk about deliverance ministries, it goes back to biblical times. I mean, there is a strong, very strong reference and examples of people being delivered from evil spirits in the Bible, both from Jesus's ministry itself into the greater New Testament um, documents. Then, you will find from the New Testament as the, the rule of faith, it really has continued throughout you know history of the church. But what we find in church history at various epochs and various times, there seems to be more emphasis placed on deliverance ministries. So it, it, I don't want to call it a fad, but it seems to swing with a pendulum. You know, maybe 30 years ago, there was a big emphasis on it. Then it kind of, you know, settles down and then it comes back and the pendulum swings back and forth. So it seems to be that we're kind of coming up to another pendulum where there's an interest in this and there is movies coming out about it. And so we thought it would be really good to address this. And, and at the core of this, Luke, the core of this, and I know you're going to address the broader deliverance ministry. But the core question usually comes down to this. Can a Christian be demon-possessed and or is it a legitimate modern expression of spirituality, if you will? Do, meaning, right. does it really happen? Because there's a lot of people say, no, no, this doesn't happen in the world anymore. What they thought were demon possessions in the Old Testament were really just mental illnesses and you don't, you just need to treat them as mental illness patients. Um, so... I know we may address a little bit of that, but let, let me just start off, again, not giving a long history, but answer the question, at least from my perspective, can a Christian be possessed by a demon? And the short answer to that question is no. And the main reason why I say that is because there is no scriptural support for Christian demon possession in the Bible. Exactly Nowhere right. in the Bible do we find a Christian being demon possessed. And, and here's, here's my rationale for saying this. Because Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, Christ will not a allow an unclean spirit to take up residence where the Holy Spirit resides. And because Christ purchased his people, the church, with his life, he guides and guards us as children. His goal is for us to be conformed into the image of himself. So we are a new creation. And so I adhere strongly to the position that born-again believers cannot be possessed. Now, I'm going to define a little bit more in the future about the difference between possession and oppression. But for the sake of the argument, let me um, toss out uh, someone who, believe it or not, was a mentor of mine 
is a mentor of mine, and I love him dearly. I've appreciated him immensely. And if he were sitting in this room with us right now, he would probably scold me and take me to, you know, the cleaners because he's he's a brilliant man. But that is the Lutheran scholar, John Warwick Montgomery. And um, I was privileged to, you know, study in, in some of his classes at seminary and so on and so forth. Well, he took the position that a Christian plausibly can be possessed. And I'm just going to read you for the sake of, you know, the two sides to be fair to both sides, uh, an excerpt from his, uh, his, uh, his article in a book called Demon Possession. Here he's saying that evangelicals miss the mark, and here he's trying to categorize the basic idea of what evangelicals think. And he says this, Here we witness the great evangelical dualism in action. Satan is given total control of everything external to the Christian heart, parentheses, politics, society, entertainment, literature, art, etc., end parentheses, but he is kept from one involute utopia, the inner life of the believer. So according to Montgomery, the evangelicals have this dualistic perspective on everything else except when it comes to demon possession. Montgomery's rationale is what he says was part of the Reformation ethic, which was totus homos est cato, which totus just means total, homo means man, est cato means flesh. So the whole man is flesh. So because humans are flesh, the argument goes, satanic influence, power, and control cut down the center, even of man's psychic life. There is no inner area of safety, no utopia retreat from sin and Satan, no dualistic division of sinful world from inner holiness. And that's a direct quote from John Warwick Montgomery. Saying that, being, and again, I don't know if Dr. Montgomery would adhere to this position. This book was written many, many years ago, and it was one of our required texts in, in seminary. If he still adheres to this position, I, I really don't agree with it in its totality, because if you were to continue to read this chapter in the book, you know, he uses two distinct terms, possession and oppression. And I personally believe they are two separate things. They're interconnected in that the perpetrator is evil, Satan, demons, whatever. But I believe they have different uh, points of not only starting, but where they're coming from. So let, let me define the difference between possession and oppression. Possession is an act of belonging, a complete power over someone or something. So if I possess, let's say in front of me, this bottle of water, it is mine. I have complete power over it. It is, it is something that I, I own, you know, essentially. So when we're talking about demon possession, as I've pointed out at the top, there is no biblical reference or inference that a Christian has ever been possessed, completely empowered by Satan and or demons. We find many examples of demon possession or even demon influence or, or, or um, uh, you know, oppression. You know, Jesus looked to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You know, basically, Peter, you're, you're, you're saying lies that are from Satan himself. But that doesn't mean Peter was necessarily possessed by Satan. 
but rather oppressed. So let's talk about the second term, oppression. Oppression is distressed hardship and exercise of authority or influence over someone. So I don't possess it, but I'm exercising authority or influence on that person. So we would say in a New Testament framework, this is akin to spiritual attack or warfare. It is a strong evil influence, but it's subtler than possession. Let me put it from a a different angle. Possession is from the inside out. Demons take up residence on the inside of the human being, affecting outward, whereas oppression is from the outside. They never take up residence on the inside. They're attacking from the outside. And so we, in my opinion, we really have to define the difference between possession and oppression. The Greek um, definition used, or the Greek word in in the New Testament, translated from the Greek, ju- it, it describes a, a variety of conditions, both physical and emotional, um, and they are discussing demonic influence on people. And that could be both believers and unbelievers, but it's the position of the demons that I think is the most important to distinguish. Because when you are fortified, you know, sealed by the Holy Spirit, saved, if you will, Christ is your guard and he's your guide. And so your body is a fortress, though still fallen, still sinful, still have that ability, but Christ is guarding your part because you can't have the Holy Spirit and an unholy spirit dwelling. So that is why Christians are constantly getting attacked from the outside, but non-believers have the ability for that demon to come in. And and I'll finish up here, Luke, and then turn it over to you, particularly as you uh, delve into some of the deliverance ministries. It is this. We need to define our terms, and we understand the, the Greek definition. What are some of the main characteristics of demon possession? What what are those? I'm going to give you those, and then I'm going to share two stories. And I have used these, um, what I call the four S's for, for many, many years, for people to really help understand the characteristics of a demon-possessed person. But let me say this, Luke, at the offset, and let me be clear. Neither you nor I are psychologists. We are biblical scholars. We're, you know, we're biblicist theologians. By no means am I saying if you have one of these four things, are you demon possessed? Chances are right. you, you're not. You're not demon possessed. And I'm going to explain that here in a minute. But these four S's are self-harm. You will find people who are demon possessed will do self-harm. And we find that in Matthew 8, 28, the man who was demon possessed. He was, he was harming himself. Now, does that mean everyone who cuts themselves or self-harm is demon possessed? Absolutely not. Just because they're cutting self doesn't mean they're demon possessed. So make sure that's clear. Secondly, the second S is social isolation. And we find that in Matthew 8, 28, Mark 5, 2, Luke 8, 27. These people usually want to socially isolate themselves. They want to be by themselves because they are full of bad things. And, And they're not out walking around, hanging out, and so on and so forth. Third is strength. There usually is accompanied unusual strength and unusual power, and that could be the adrenaline that's kicked in or something else. And I'm going to share a story here in a moment. And then the fourth characteristic is severe psychological disorders. And this is usually, it's inciting a fear in the person or other people around them. There's a ferocity. They're, 
they're angry, they're, they're, you feel like they're going to kill you or hurt themselves. And there's fervor against God, against themselves, against people, against life. So these four characteristics usually work in conjunction with one another, but usually someone who is possessed, these characteristics are there and they all have biblical examples. So as biblicists, we're using the Bible as our normative understanding of these things. So self-harm, social isolation, strength, this this weird strength, and severe psychological disorder. So let, let me end with two stories to give you an example. One day I was at church. This was at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and um, all the guys, the ministers are on call. And so I get a call at the front office and they say, Brian, can you come to the front office very quickly? We have a guy who says, He's demon-possessed, and he needs to talk to a pastor. So I was the one that was called, and I went up, and I took the gentleman out. We sat at a, a park table, and I brought another pastor along just to ensure that you know everything was kosher. And the guy started telling why he's possessed, and then he tried to do the voice change, kind of the exorcist-type thing. And I'm just looking at him and I'm letting him go, you know, on with these antics. And he's trying to, again, the big voice change was his, his representation that he was possessed. And I said, well, I'm going to stop you now. I said, first of all, you're not possessed. I said, secondly, you're probably um, either A, on drugs or you're having a psychotic event. And then, you know, how do you know I'm not possessed? And you know, all this type of things. I said, first of all, darkness is not going to seek light. You're not isolating yourself. There's no, there's no, you know, self-harm. There isn't a fervor or ferocity to what you're saying. So I could just tell by the characteristics that you're really not possessed. You're, you may be oppressed, but more importantly, you're probably A, not on your medication for depression or psychotics, or B, you're just completely confused right now. And what was funny, by the end of the conversation, he had stopped the vocal antics. He was almost wanting someone, an illicit, like someone just to to, to react to him. And when I did, and I just sat there and I just smiled and I chuckled a few times when he was you know, doing these, these, um, these voice manipulations. And he was a younger guy. He was probably in his upper 20s, early 30s. And by the end, I prayed with them and, and I said, you know, we'll gladly refer you to some Christian counselors and to get you some help and so on and so forth. And, and at the end, he goes, well, I'm just glad I'm not possessed. And, and I said, well, I have no biblical grounds to assess that you're possessed. You know, there is oppression or you're being spiritually attacked or your body's just kicking and saying, I need my psychotic medicines. The second story I'm going to share, Luke, is a little bit more in akin. And it didn't happen to me personally happened to a fellow minister at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And we were once driving out to the Bible college where we both taught, um, which was a little bit of drive from Costa Mesa. And we got in the conversation. He shared with me this story. And he's a senior pastor of a, of a church now in Southern California. And, I, and, and this idea of demon possession came up. And I said, Dave, have you ever been one? He goes, well, you know, like you, Brian, I've had these kind of stories that don't pan out. But he goes, there is one. He said, many years ago, probably 10 years ago at the time, he goes, I got a phone call from a a fellow pastor who said he has heard from a friend that there is a demon-possessed person, but this person won't go out of their house and doesn't want to be around people. So could we, he and this other guy, because Dave was a, he is, he's a black belt martial arts expert as well as being a pastor. So these two guys were called upon to go to the house. And Dave at the time stopped and said, that was an indicator that this may be the real deal. 
that this person wasn't coming out, standing in line at the church and, you know, wanting to be prayed. They, they were wanting to isolate themselves. So someone had to go to them. And Dave said, as they approached the house, he goes, Brian, I don't get into spooky things, but he goes, there was deep, deep darkness, just even approaching the house. They let themselves in and all the characteristics were there. He said, you know, this guy was socially isolated. There was self-harm going on. And Dave said, Brian, there was supernatural strength. This person, and Dave is, is about 6'1", 6'2". He's, he's my height. He goes, this guy manhandled us. And he was, he was half our size. He'd pick us up and he would throw us around. And there's two grown men, six feet tall. He just manhandled us. He goes, it was unbelievable and scary. And they finally secured him and they did an exorcism. And the man calmed down afterwards. He was like the biblical accounts where he, mm. he was just pensive and sitting there. And But Dave said it was one of the most spookiest things he's ever been to because you know there was self-harm. There was social isolation. There was this supernatural strength. And there's severe psychological disorders. This guy was fuming. I mean, it, you know, when he was when he was manhandling them, and that was the words um, Dave used. You know, there was fear, and there was there was fervor against God and everything else. Everything that you would think would be involved in in demon possession was there. So the characteristics matched the biblical record. So all that said and done is the short answer. Going back to it, can a Christian be possessed by a demon? I personally do not believe they can. A, there's no scriptural support. Two, we've been delivered from sin and evil, Ephesians 2.2. 2. And Christ is our guard. He's our guardian. And I don't think something unholy and something holy can live together. But all that said and done, Luke, I know you have done a lot of work looking into these resurgence of deliverance ministries. And as we've pointed out at the top of the, the broadcast, there is a even a movie, which we're, we're not going to talk about the movie, but it's becoming a popular thing once again. So yes. I'm turning it over to you. Brian, that was excellent information. And I know I say that every week because it's always excellent every week. <laughs> and it's one of my favorite times of the week. We want to bring this topic up because of how serious it is. And I'm going to, I'm going to share a brief story. It's tragic. But in my undergraduate days, there was, a, there was a man who was a pastor who was heavily involved in the spiritual warfare slash deliverance ministries, which was really one of the other big terms that came out. If you remember, there was a book that really spawned some of this in a popular way by Frank Peretti mm -hmm. called The Oath. And there's this almost fan fiction type of feel that came along with all of these types of thoughts where, and there's, there's multiple movies out there. We're not going to talk about those. There's some that are still coming out where there's these sensational demon fighting, demon slayer, things that are not found in the New Testament. Well, suffice to say that. But this gentleman who had been a former police officer, became a pastor was heavily involved in the spiritual warfare stuff and was teaching some of the things that I'm going to talk about briefly today in that Christians being possessed, needing deliverance, have no spiritual victory effectively without the prescribed means of the deliverance ministers. Unfortunately, both this man's daughter 
and his wife both committed suicide. Mm. And Mm. it was directly due to the manner of teaching. And this same individual is now part of a Christian counseling ministry Mm. that is a deliverance counseling service. And so all I'm saying is this, that they're just to open with that, to talk about the seriousness of this. When you try to convince somebody that they are not free unless someone else sets them free, someone other than Jesus, that they cannot be delivered from the things with which they struggle, some of which are fairly innocuous but have then been ascribed to demonic influence, they feel that there's no place of escape. Mm. And if there's no deliverance in Christ, Brian, what in the world are any of us doing? Yeah. Yeah, we're, and, that is a serious uh, claim, and the ramifications, as you're pointed out, have serious repercussions. Absolutely. And so this is why this is such a serious thing, because in claiming to bring deliverance, the ministers of these types of movements bring bondage, and it is significant bondage, and it sometimes results in the very effects that they're claiming to thwart but then it creates loyalty where people are relying on this external mechanism, on this external, quote, prophet or external apostle or somebody that has the power of deliverance and anointing upon them. And I'm not trying to be facetious. I'm saying these are words that are being used. And as a result of that, they feel like there's no other solution for them. And they live a a completely defeated life. They live a completely fearful life in which there is no evidence due to the way that they're thinking, of actual deliverance. So I'm going to just start with the four or five things here. And some of these come from sites. I deliberately picked a few sites after looking at many with which some of our audience would be familiar. And that is uh, got questions. And it doesn't mean that Calvary College or everything at Calvary supports every single question and every single answer on these sites. This is not an endorsement. So let's not take it that way. I'm talking particularly about this subject Um, under gotquestions.org. They had a great statement that I wanted to put because it's very simplistically stated. It says, Deliverance ministries largely focus on the casting out of demons or spirits in an attempt to solve problems allegedly related to specific demons. So there's much to be unpacked there. I'm just going to keep going through this list, and I'm going to talk about it briefly because, as you know, our show, we can only scratch the surface. Number two, Deliverance ministries, and this doesn't come from God questions, this is other things that I put together. Deliverance ministries believe that Christians can be demon-possessed, though they may use words like oppressed and harassed. Remember, if they are specifically trying to cast a demon out, it's because they believe that the demon is in. Don't be fooled by terminology. Examine the works. Mm -hmm. And this is a very important thing because a lot of different communities, some of which are since or what we would call cessationist communities, are being sucked into this because they don't necessarily believe in the manifestation of the Spirit. They don't believe in the fivefold ministry, right? Which Calvary does not support the fivefold ministry either, but we are not a cessationist community. There's a lot of variations that are here. But there are a number of people who are open-minded towards seeing spiritual manifestations, And they would very clearly draw the same distinction that you and I would, Brian, about oppression and possession. As you pointed out, there's only one word, the demonizani, I think Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. how it's pronounced. And it's talking about the demonization of individuals. And as you clearly pointed out, it was so excellent about the internal versus external. Just because a demon cannot take up residence in you does not mean that things in your environment, depending on how, well, I'll just put it this way. 
how attuned you are to the pursuit of personal holiness Mm -hmm. can affect your life. There can be a whole lot of things that God allows to happen because you are specifically not in obedience to him. And that doesn't mean you need to be thinking, this is generational cursing, this is all this other stuff. We're going to touch on that briefly. But there are many of these same elements that quite frankly, just describe the normal Christian life and the struggles that Christians must go through in what we would call, not the demonizomai, but the agonizomai. Mm-hmm. The fact that we have a personal responsibility to rid ourselves of sin, and therefore we have the power. The Bible even says this, the Spirit living within us says, if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. Well, that's a personal thing. So a couple of other points. This is one of the reasons we do not accept this is because this teaches sanctification by exorcism. Mm -hmm. That is not a biblical concept. Number four, many of these ministries will try to use verses of Scripture out of context to try to argue for the fact that the Christian, in addition to being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, can also be giving residence to demons or devils. And there's a whole series, and I'm not going to get into all of this, but what I would call spiritual or metaphysical mechanics— in which they've made these intangible claims of internal compartmentalization that are not in the Bible. This is not how your spiritual anatomy works. And they're like, well, yes, the Spirit dwells, the Holy Spirit dwells in man's spirit, but there's no mention of the fact that he dwells in the soul, and there's no mention of the fact that he dwells, and they make up all of these other parts because we're body, soul, and spirit. Then they say, well, it's in these other places that the Spirit does not occupy in which one may give place to a demon. There is absolutely no teaching in Scripture that even comes close to saying that. In fact, the Bible says this, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. It never says that there's other things in us. And that's not just an argument from silence. If God is dwelling in you and you belong to him, he is jealous of those things which belong to him. And he even says this, Paul talks about it. He's not going to give residence to anything else. It's part of the reason why he seals us so that we belong to him completely. Body, Mm -hmm. soul, and spirit, the Bible says, which are gods. That is possession. It's mm-hmm. exactly as you exactly articulated, right. Brian. And then many of these deliverance ministries will claim that unless you believe that Christians can be possessed, you aren't a real deliverance minister, which is a very convenient claim, of right. course. Right. It allows them to be pejorative to anyone who's bringing the scriptures and its appropriate interpretation to the mix. And I've watched a number of the videos of these gentlemen, and I'm not going to mention their names, even though I could, trust me, I'm even personally familiar with some of them. Some of them even went to the same school that I did, and I know them and they know me. I'm not going to give them free publicity. But suffice to say, there's a whole world out there that I do not encourage you to research, but I want you to be aware of so that you're not blindsided when people try to shoehorn this kind of thing in. And here's how it's done. And I think this is one of the most important parts of the cast, not to say anything about the history or what we've talked about, but in people's desire for the revived Christian life, the life that is simply Christ's life in you, the hope of glory being lived out through your life by power of the Holy Spirit, by you simply yielding to him. That's what walking in the Spirit is. I want to be careful how I say this. So as people are longing for this deeper life, these ministers, these deliverance ministers come to them under the auspices of being able to be the ushers of revival. Mm -hmm. And they say the usher of revival is deliverance. Let us come to your church and let us bring deliverance to your church. We're going to set up a deliverance service. We're going to ask people to come forward for healing. Everybody's like, oh, that's great. Calvary believes in healing. 
Absolutely, we believe that God's works continue today. And absolutely, we affirm the scripture that say that if you have an issue, you're to come before the elders of the church and they are to anoint you and to pray with you that you be healed. But it also says, confessing out your sins that you may be healed. So there are other things that are involved here. It's no, There's no evidence there of a demonic possession from which that person needs to be delivered. It simply is not there. So if there's no evidence that there is any demonic possession of the individuals that are being told to come forward to the elders of the church, specifically for healing, then it begs a very particular question. Again, does a biblical viewpoint affirm that there is such a thing as demonic possession? Absolutely. Is there such a thing as demonic power? Absolutely. Do we believe that people can be possessed by demons and therefore also be delivered from them? Absolutely. What we deny here is that this applies to Christians. Now, here's how this normally gets played by these folks that are doing deliverance ministries, amongst the other things that I've already mentioned, where they deny that you're a real deliverance minister unless you believe that Christians could be demon-possessed. One of the primary arguments that they use is this. Well, show me a scripture where it says that Christians can't be demon-possessed. And I want to draw attention to this because this is very important for you to know about the manner in which they argue for their position. Let's look carefully at that statement. Show me a scripture in the Bible where it says that Christians can't be demon-possessed. This is a very clever way of doing a very simple thing, shifting the burden of proof. You see, we affirm from what the scriptures teach that Christians can't be demon-possessed for some of the reasons that we've already mentioned. You're sealed. You belong to God. You are possessed by God entirely. You belong to him, your body, soul, and your spirit. So no matter how they try to slice it up and change the spiritual anatomical construction there, it all belongs to God. End of story. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There's no reference there of any other spirits residing in you. And then lastly, of course, if the sun shall set you free, you shall be free. How much? Partially, right? No. You shall be free indeed. That means completely. And so when they talk about, well, neither give place to the devil, that means that a Christian can give place to the devil. And they speak of this as if it is a spatial aspect. So in some way, shape, or form, by doing something, you're creating additional metaphysical room inside you somewhere and invite a demon, despite being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're inviting a demon to come and reside within you. There's no interpretation that countenances that type of understanding of that verse, except for theirs. I was talking about them coming in as the arbiters of revival, and this is related to next week's topic, which is the New Apostolic Reformation. We're going to grab the bull by the horns on that one, and we're going to take it head on next week. You definitely need to listen to that, because this is one of the most threatening movements in modern Christianity, and it's trying to hijack movements of God and attribute them falsely to these unbiblical spiritual constructs. That's for next week, but this does touch on some of those ideas. And that's why we wanted to make that its own separate podcast. But here's these churches, right? And they're thirsty for God, and they're zealous of God, and they, they're praying for revival. And in comes deliverance minister A, B, and C, telling them, we know how to bring deliverance to the church and to therefore bring revival. And they come in and they 
push this methodology on the church and they have these healing services and then they have these deliverance services. And what will happen is as people are in various degrees of discomfort about this happening, all of a sudden there may actually be somebody in that building who is demon possessed, who is not a Christian, and they're delivered of that demon in that service. That is then used to try to verify the claims of these deliverance ministers that what they are doing is legitimate because it's a common experience and they themselves talk about this. They are intending to bring these types of challenges into the mainstream church. They are intending, and these things come directly from their own mouths. They are intending to entrap pastors in a conundrum about if you believe in demonic possession and deliverance from demonic possession, then why aren't you doing something about that in our church? Now, they beat people over the head who deny that Christians can be demon-possessed, and they make that front and center. Why? Well, the answer to that is quite simple. It's not very easy to go around and try to find someone who's demonically possessed. I've encountered them. As Brian mentioned, there are people who have encountered them, but it is not the norm. Therefore, there's a whole lot of other sensationalism that's happening. And then all of a sudden you have basically a captive audience to whom you attribute demonic possession simply because they have struggles with sin. One of these deliverance ministers made a statement that said, if you're addicted to anything, you've got company. Now, I want you to think about the spiritual implications of that, not just in the sense that it's not correct, but that it puts a huge amount of authority into that person's expectations, right? In other words, they're expected to not only be able to comment on this intangible battle that you're experiencing and to give you a very whitewashed diagnostic for what needs to be happening in your life. And rather than actually doing the work to be transformed by the Spirit of God over the course of seeking the presence of God, Christian counsel, etc., you can do it in just one hit. Go up there and be delivered and prayed over. You have no further responsibilities at that point but to go up there and pray that the demon of gluttony leaves you, and I'm not making this up, that the demon of fear leaves you, that the demon of, and name your spirit, basically, and they've had a whole lot of other things, also something completely unbiblical. I've heard them talk about the spirit of fear as if it is an individual, that it has personhood and is therefore a demon. That's not what the Bible is talking about in those instances. When you try to defend against the, the person who is already indwelt by the Spirit being possessed, they try to prevent you from being able to use the verses that say, what concord hath Christ with Belial, or the temple of God with idols? They say you can't use that as talking about something else. When that clearly points to the fact that their methodology and their understanding of spiritual anatomy is wrong, aside from the other verses that we've spoken about. Now, Another telling aspect is in a Q&A session that I was able to observe with a panel of these individuals that were considered to be deliverance ministers. The first question that they get is one that asks, if a person commits suicide, are they going to go to hell? Now, we answered that one in one of our earliest podcasts. The answer to that is unequivocally, if they are a believer in Jesus Christ, absolutely not. This guy who is spearheading many of the modern deliverance ministry individuals, he opens that question by saying that we don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us whether or not people who commit suicide go to hell. 
Again, another focus on the way that they're arguing. It's that show me a verse that says this. That in itself is problematic because, again, it shifts the burden of proof. Rather than saying the Bible doesn't talk about what happens to people who commit suicide, an appropriate biblical interpretation is to go back to what the Bible says about salvation. That is something we do know, and that there is no sin that can violate one's relationship with Christ. This answer to this question is indicative of his mode of interpretation, in that if he believes a Christian could be demon-possessed, why wouldn't he believe that a Christian who commits certain types of sin would potentially end up in hell? So there are a number of alarming hermeneutic flags about this, and I, I mention this for your vigilance, because if you're aware of it, when you begin to see this type of interpretation, you need to pay attention to exactly what's being said, or else you may be unwittingly drawn into a net that sets the foundation for, quote, deliverance ministries. Now, how can we be so confident that these in individuals are incorrect in their interpretation? We are a textual community here. We are people of the book, and it's not something we have to go and prove to someone else. The book itself interprets itself, speaking of the Bible, and we simply allow it to do so. So the, the individual who's making the assertion, show me a scripture in there that says Christians can't be demon-possessed, by shifting the burden of the proof, they are trying to make us, who don't believe what they're asserting, prove our own position without them having to prove anything. If they are making the assertion, they are responsible to prove that from the Word of God in a manner that is able to withstand intense contextual scrutiny. Think about this yourself, even while we're listening to this, this information. There's not a single evidence in the ministry of Christ or in the rest of the New Testament where anyone who is a Christian is ever delivered from a demonic spirit. It simply is not there. And many of you read the Bible and you know this kind of thing already, but I can assure you at this point, it's not in the Bible. There is no one in the New Testament who was delivered of a demon who was already a believer. Therefore, if we have absolutely no examples in the New Testament of believers being delivered from demonic possession, we have no foundation on which all of this deliverance ministry is being built because their keystone is that this is for the church. It's not primarily for the unsaved. And they'll even say that salvation's for the lost, but deliverance is for the church. Well, they're speaking of being delivered from demonic spirits, many of which are just as fanciful as the Catholic hierarchy of angels in which they have Raphael and all of these other angels that are not named in scripture. They're making intangible claims that have no scriptural support. So before you get caught up in the experience that these types of events provide, go to the scripture. Do not allow your experience to dictate your theology, even if the person who's there is trying to use that experience particularly to claim to reveal theology that as of yet you've not been willing to admit. You say, how do you know that? Peter when he discussed the Mount of Transfiguration, what did he say? He said, we were there. We saw Jesus being transformed into 
a brightness brighter than the sun, and he was accompanied by Moses and Elijah. And then he says this, if you have any doubt about the fact that the, that the Bible needs to be supplemented by personal experience, listen to what he says. He says, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. What he's saying there is, I was there, I experienced an amazing thing. Peter, James, and John are there. And he said, even though I experienced that with my own eyes, I am willing to set that aside. And this is shortly before he says, why? Because no word of God is subject to private interpretation. It was written by the Holy Spirit, and therefore, as men who were motivated by the Holy Spirit to write it, wrote it, those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit are able to read it and understand it according to his dictates, not as a means to be supplemented with exciting spiritual endeavors that allegedly will lead toward the next wave of revival. Now, we're going to talk about this more when we discuss the new apostolic reformation, because there's much of this that's going to be brought in where these individuals that are doing these deliverance ministries, they are one and the same as many of those who are the part of the new apostolic reformation. They believe that they are adding prophets and apostles back into the church. Now, back to the subject at hand, due to that influence from the New Apostolic Reformation. There is much to be said about the post-millennial view, which we've discussed before. It's not a biblical view. And the dominion theology view that comes along with this. It's the Christian's job to bring in the kingdom. It's the Christian's job to do. And there's all of these things where we're supposed to be making things better and better by engaging these spiritual warfare activities. Now, do we deny that spiritual warfare is necessary? Nope, not at all. We just don't believe that that kind of, quote, warfare, unquote, is engaged with in other believers in that they're being demon-possessed and must be delivered from it. As we've looked at this, there's another thing that a lot of people have questions about. Well, what does that mean about generational curses? Some people believe that there are demons that follow bloodlines, that there are people who have the same type of generational sins as others. There are some elements of truth in the latter part of what I just said, not the former, in that people who are raised in families who have vulnerabilities to certain sins may also themselves have vulnerabilities to certain sins. But this, this understanding that one has to be delivered from this curse, folks, that's what Jesus came to do. Some people have called him the curse reverser, and rightfully so. There is no need for additional works of God to supplement the finished work of Jesus Christ. If Christ be for you, who can be against you? You belong to him. So if you're one of those folks who are, happen to be in our audience, and you're hearing that the only way for you to get rid of this particular addiction or the sin that you have is to go to a tent revival and have a demon cast out of you, if you're truly a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to avoid that like the plague. That is not Christ's method for your sanctification. The Bible says this, as ye have received Christ Jesus, so walk ye in him. Do not be deceived by the simplicity that is in Christ. You received everything that you needed for life and godliness the moment that the Holy Spirit of God baptized you into the body of Christ when you exercised faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as the only way to be reconciled to the Father. That is salvation, and sanctification is of the same characteristic as salvation. It is of Christ, and sanctification is also of 
Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Paul says. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In none of the verses, in exactly none of the verses that speak to our sanctification, is there any mention of deliverance from demonic possession. So as we look at what the Word of God says and what it does not say, number one, do not allow the burden of proof to be shifted to you to try to give evidence of something that they have no right to claim, because that pushes you into a narrow corner without any means by which to articulate what needs to be articulated. The scriptures themselves are the testimony that we must hold to when it comes to how Christ has already told us to live the Christian life. So definitely appreciate your attention. This has been a lot of material, but I want you to be aware of it. I know uh, Dr. Nixon does as well. And the unequivocal answer is no, a Christian cannot be demon-possessed. Do not get involved in these movements that say that this is the way that you must walk with Christ. This is the way you must be delivered from addictions. There are plenty of resources, many of which are at Calvary Church. If you are struggling with addiction, if you're struggling with a certain sin, reach out because we are here to help. But our help does not come by means of deliverance ministries. Jesus Christ is our deliverer, and he has already set you free. It's just a matter of you yielding to the Spirit of God putting to death the deeds of the flesh by that manner and that manner alone. And absolutely it works. And absolutely you can be free without other people prescribing a spiritual mechanic or a spiritual deliverance that's something extra biblical. So thank you again for listening. If you have additional questions, reach out to us at calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. Again, that's calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. This has been Squawk, and once again, thank you for listening.